2: Learn more about Roberta's at Roberta'sPizza.com.
1: Culture and Flavor is a podcast about food and culture centered in black and indigenous foodways, hosted by myself, Zella Palmer, right here in New Orleans, Louisiana. Each episode features high vibrational conversations with cultural bearers, chefs, farmers, scholars, barbecue pit masters, and more. Where there is flavor, there is history. Join me on Culture and & Flavor and all of my guests as we share stories that will have you praise, dancing, cooking, conjuring, and inspiring your culinary journey. Welcome to another episode of Culture and Flavor with Zella Palmer. Today, y'all, we have a special guest, Joelle Desec, who is one of my just lovely friends that is such a light, um, is such an amazing Black woman in food media that is doing incredible things. I am so excited to have her on this episode of Culture and Flavor and to really talk about Um, Just her background, being both Haitian and African-American, her um, recent master's degree from the California Institute of Integral Studies on Semitic uh, Psychology, and also all of the work that she did on the Food Network with Chopped and the iTunes podcast, Empire on Blood. Welcome, Joelle, to Culture and Flavor.
3: Thank you for having me. So lovely to be here.
1: Awesome. Let's get into it. So, I, you know, just to give our our listeners just a background on how we met, uh, Joel. Uh, I recently had uh, my aunt on culture and flavor. And we all kind of met through this um, HBCU tailgate throwdown that was filmed at Dillard. And you uh, were such an amazing just light and just breath of fresh air and, you know, just how you worked with students. And just we were just so amazed to have you. And I know I'm going to have you back for some future programming just to talk to students, especially our film majors, about um, Food media and I just want to talk about how you got started uh, in food media and you know just your trajectory through this um, through this world.
3: Wonderful. Well, uh, it like to be very honest, it was a leap of faith. <laughs> you know I think we don't talk about that enough of when you just have a sense that um, this ain't it. Um, I was looking in marketing and we were doing these big projects for, you know, ABC television and all this stuff. And, and we weren't getting any credit for anything. It's always based off of the, um, the client. And I said, this ain't it, you know, I want to not only get credit for what it is I'm doing behind the curtain, which is already Unseen in a lot of ways. I want it to be seen, whether it's just in a small accreditation and rolling rolling at the end of a film or a TV show, and nobody stays around, but it's recorded somewhere, right? And um, I took a leap of faith. I started at the bottom, leaving marketing and starting as a production assistant. Um, I did, you know, like taking of Pelham, one, two, three large films of Denzel Washington, um, I Am Legend, like starting off at an assistant level there. But when you start to understand the beast of media, you're like, okay, either you want to ride this out in the larger frame or do you want to get more succinct and specialized? And I went that route. I wanted to be in the office. I wanted to be where the money was. I wanted to see who the people were that made the thing actually happen that wasn't explicitly just creative. And um, and I found my way into... Um, offices for like the Kathy Griffin show, like small, smaller TV shows, um, but still had big followings on, you know, Bravo or whatever. And there was an opportunity to come on as a coordinator for food networks chopped. And I was like, huh? Yeah. I, i like that show. And it was super new. It was still, I think I came in on season four, So super early, you know, and um, and I said, well, let me see what this is about. They paid well enough. And it was also going to give me a bump from assistant to coordinator. And that's kind of how I got started. And the more I learned, I think actually within the first uh, season, the first uh, chunk that I worked, I realized there are little loopholes and issues between talent and paperwork and and I honestly, I tell people all the time, if you find a loophole to create the job of your dreams, do it. And Chopped gave me that opportunity. I said, you know, I don't mind coordinating, but I think you're missing an opportunity to have a talent uh, a talent person, someone just focused on talent that can really ride out all of your paperwork and money sh- strategy around who's in front of the camera, whether that's a judge or a competing chef. And I'm so grateful for other Uh, Amazing black line producers, black women, queer folks who are just like already marginalized and like, okay, let's do this. And they create we we created that position and it sort of avalanched into um, not only a career in this world of like food, culinary, television, but it also. Uh, institutionalized systems within talent management, within that world that now has been adopted into many more programs on Food Network. I'm very proud to be a part of that.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, just when I think about, you know, since you started it from the beginning, I'm sure, you know, just having, like you said, marginalized folks in media behind the scenes making this happen, I'm sure, you know, we I know we saw the... Tr- the difference as the episodes and the seasons, you know, continue to grow and the people who were included on the, sh- on the television uh, program. And, you know, p- I think about even just chef Linda. I mean, that was just such a, you know, moment in new Orleans just to see, um, you know, chef Linda green, the Yakamine lady win chopped. I mean, we were just like blown away by that, you know, and that made, that really made us so happy. So You know, I loved um, just watching the growth of uh, Chopped and just seeing how, you know, it changed over the years and each episode seemed to be more inclusive Uh, and even the ingredients started to change and be more inclusive of the world that we live in. I remember watching one episode where one of the uh, mystery ingredients was plantains and some of the comments that were made uh, about plantains and not the the, either it was the judge or one of the chefs weren't sure what to do with the plantain you know and I was just thinking to myself at the time you know just how we have to be in these spaces and we have to make sure that you know our food from all over the world is prime and center and I think you also did that with HBCU tailgate throwdown when I think about uh the Cameroonian chef that um you know, it was part of the the lineup and 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 just showing diversity in our food ways and especially in black food ways is critical to um, building a global cuisine and getting recognition for it as much as other cuisines uh, you know from other continents and and regions so I, I I applaud you for that. Thank you. Yeah it's very it's very
3: important, especially um, You know that we we know this particularly the the western culinary world they they glorify particularly french cuisine or the culinary um dynamics of in construction for that but then we live in new orleans right we live where people literally come from all over the world to have gumbo and and that is in and of itself foundationally an african west african dish and that's not, you know, I was on, in a conversation with a, a young man from New Orleans, and he is just like his interpretation of, of gumbo, I found interesting. And I said, wow, we're losing a lot of the actual history and the necessity to bring back um, language, right? Like the word gumbo actually meaning just okra in West Africa. It is an actual word that is utilized in everyday language that we just think is a dish. And so, and to your point about uh, plantains, me being Haitian, obviously that is a huge staple to our cuisine. We say banan, but there's so many different ways to use it, and how it has sta- sustained so many people um, on the Western Hemisphere just alone throughout throughout the
1: ages. Mm-hmm. And so let's, so I'm glad you touched on your um, background. You know, I would love for our, our listeners to learn a little bit more about your childhood upbringing. I mean, your life between New York and New Orleans, you know, and, and even just Haitian, how Haitian culture and African-American culture has grounded you in who you are and the stories that you tell.
3: Yeah. So my, my mother is Haitian. My father is African-American or Black-American here from, from the States, some country folk. And, um, you know, and I, and I love that because it gives me a different, um, context around lived experiences. Um, my paternal grandmother, uh, beautiful as she was stood six, six, two, you know, tall, dark skin, very fine hair, but she was raised on a reservation as an black Indian. Right. And so I hold these awarenesses of one, being Black in America means so many things. It may be Black and red, it may be uh, Caribbean, right? Um, as New Orleans holds all those uh, intersections. And so um, it was very important for my mom who immigrated here in the early 60s, um, um, you know, unfortunately fleeing Haiti at a, at a very harsh time with a very harsh dictator. And coming for our family, we we were of a certain elite class, and that's very real. I don't think we, one thing we don't talk enough about is how class plays a role in the larger story of um, of, of Black culture. And, um, and they fled to America and had to start from the bottom, had to learn to speak English. Uh, I was just talking about this with one of my aunts who came here about 13 years old, and she couldn't. She didn't know how to ask to go to the bathroom, right? In English, when she first came to this country. So we think about what does that mean? How does that linger on in the relationship? And um, they strive to make sure that they're doing well in the new the new country that they're in. Um, all that to be said, my mom grew up here, high school, college. Um, she met my father in northeastern in Boston. Uh, go Huskies for those listening, and she's you know Zeta, you know they everybody did their. She came into the Divine Nine. I love that she took proactive approaches to not only um, be herself fully in 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 how she recognizes her her being Haitian and now American Black American, but also Black American culture and in the ways that it showed up that made sense to her. Um, and so they had me. And what I love about that coming together was it just really became a part of how I recognized the world in a multiplicity. Um, And so at about 10 years old, we moved to, uh, we moved from New York City because I was born and raised in New York, Queens originally. And then um, we moved here to New Orleans where I then had to adjust from the Northeastern mentality to the Southern. Mm -hmm. I remember coming here and I said hi you guys and, uh, <laughs> and this girl in my class said oh we don't say that we say y'all I said oh okay I'm sorry you know and I had to learn <laughs> oh we we in the south I gotta learn the new things and and I loved how like I had a funny name, and they could tell I was like black with some extra sauce or something. They were like, "What are you?" I was just like, <laughs> I'm, "I'm black," like you know, like I had to remember, like yeah, like y'all not here to hear about Haiti and you know. But they're like, "Yeah, you're black. All right, that's good. We, you with us? That's all that matters." And and that that kind of thinking helps me to navigate the multiplicity of what black can be and look like, whether it's from the continent to the uh, West Indies, South America, North America, and um, and I am so grateful for having both heritages uh, as well as being from both cities. I tell people all the time, like, "Oh, where are you from?" I'm like, "I'm from here. I'm from New Orleans, and I'm from New York. I'm a hybrid." And uh, and there's and there's space for us to exist because in a lot of ways we we we
1: change the way of language to be more helpful,
3: right, across um, cultural lines.
1: As you grew, uh, what you know what are some of the lessons that you've learned from both of your backgrounds, both of your heritages, from um, both sides? You know, um, how, what are some of the lessons that you've learned just living in that duality between New York and New Orleans about place, about who you are as a black woman showing up in, in media? <sighs> Definitely, um,
3: so in New York, I would say the double-edged sword of grinding and keeping up with the pace. There's one thing I appreciate is that New York is sort of like iron sharpens iron. When you are in, as I call New York, sort of the, the ocean or the sea of New York, you ain't, you ain't the big fish. You ain't never going to be the big fish. There's whales in here. There's clown fish. This is an ocean and New York, you have to really roll with your identity. Even if you're coral, even if you're an eel, you start to understand your identity. You start to understand how you move through um, sort of the waves of just, of all the things, right? Um, and that's also why that the city can sort of eat you up. If you don't know and you don't figure it out fast enough, it's going to wash it out. But if you can sustain And you can always tap out. You can always leave. I've left. It sharpens you. It really makes you um, appreciate whatever your craft is, whether that's in the fashion industry or media or being a lawyer. Um, And it's taught me how to, again, in an international lens, be able to speak across different lines. Um, Even as young, I, I, I think about being seven and being able to identify where every child in my second grade class was from hereditarily. That's not normal, right? Most people don't have that opportunity to say, oh, so-and-so's from Guyana, so-and-so's from Nigeria, so-and-so is Irish. That changes the way you walk into the world even 10 years later because you've already, some people are just learning all these languages or cultures or people, and you already, that's, that's imprinted at seven. But that pace after a while of New York gets tiring, at least for me. I will speak for myself in that way. Um, And then there's this beautiful sanctuary that I call New Orleans that teaches you how to slow down, how to be in your body, how to enjoy pleasures in the most normal way, like music, right? You move to New Orleans and, and then growing up here, how normal it was that every one of your friends not only was a musician but could sing or knew how to groove and dance, and that was just like, "Wow, amazing! I can enjoy the pleasures of the big easy. We literally call it the big easy because, as my nanny would say, "Where is you going? You know why is you going <laughs> Sit down, right? <laughs> and growing up between those sort of um, speed dials, I, I will say when I lived in California, it was the first time I noticed I, I only had two speed dials. I had very fast New York and very slow New Orleans, very relaxed. California was the only place I found. oh, this is middle. this is this is a normal pace, right? I didn't know what that was until um, I had to go a little farther west. but yeah. Yep, in general,
1: the two the two make a, a beautiful harmony when you allow them. And what are some of your food memories from growing up between both illustrious cities, as you as you put it? <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know what's funny? The first thing that comes to mind is heat. Heat. I will never forget as a child my grandmother giving me a dish, my Haitian grandmother giving me a dish. And it was hot. like a, It was like one of those moments where I was being honored, a, a grown dish of Aisian, you know, Haitian culture. And I felt so, yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm meeting at the table with the grown people. I'm going to eat the grown people stuff, right? And I took a bite of that thing. I said, oh, pima, pima, pique, pique, like it's hot, it's hot. And she, you know, she was racing to get me some juice or something. Oh, my God. You know, she, she she babied me. I loved it, though. And uh, and that's a very strong memory of of, of really feeling like I'm, I've uh, graduated in some ways to eat the real Haitian food. And it was hot. And then 10 years old, my mom moves us to New Orleans. And I go to my first. I, my first social event. I don't think I had been here a month, maybe not even. I feel like only a few weeks. And where am I at? A crawfish boil, child. <laughs> I, you know, I was. I I was like, this looks like a lot of work. I don't know. My mom said, like, "Well, just have the corn." And I was like, "Yeah, I have the corn." And what's the first memory? <gasps> it's burning my mouth. And my mom was like, well, we're here now and it doesn't get any less spicier. And that was memory. That's like literal memory of like, figure it out. I think that, I think she said that, like, figure it out because this is where we live now. So heat, heat is the first culinary memory of both sides.
1: Have, have were you a, have you been able to visit haiti um and visit your family there or need to send family relatives in haiti yet no
3: not especially not after the earthquake and no
1: yeah yeah
3: Unfortunately,
1: but, you know in in New Orleans and New York there are you know haitian communities how have mm-hmm. you been able to kind of you know just be a part of that community or just or or, or just, you know, focus on taking what that heritage and, and uh, let me back up, erase that part. <laughs> How have you been able to um, engage with the Haitian community in New York and New Orleans so that you can also tell stories that, like you said, are a duality of who you are in this world? So I feel like for me, engaging in
3: the Haitian community in both um, cities, depending on like now versus back in the day, now it's more just being a community member, being someone that folks know if you need this, that, and the third, do not hesitate. I am available, Um, whether that's, and, and like extending my resources, I feel like at this age and stage, it is very important um, to be a resource if you have capacity, if you have the connections and the networks. So if that is, um, and, and let me also say being Haitian for me means being Hispanic Claiming my Hispanic, the, us being the original Hispaniola, which is where you get the word Hispanic from, um, Afro-Latina or Latinx, um, as well as being Black. Like working actively in those intersections so that folks can come to you from any of those intersections. Um, that's how I, I resonate with being a communal Haitian woman. Um And that means if there, if you need anything, whether that's something very simple, like, you know, I need a a hookup to know where to get pate. Okay, fine. Or, um, but it extends to other black communities. I've had Brazilian friends hit me up like, hi, we've had a crisis and we know that you're good people and we know that you're located in New Orleans. Can you help us? Yes. Yes, I can. As someone who's a part of the Latin community, I can as a Haitian woman. I don't have to always speak one language to be of, of help. Right. Um, in New York, New York is just, uh, New Orleans Haitian community is a little smaller. Obviously most most Haitians now live on the West bank of New Orleans. When I was growing up, most Haitians lived on the East bank in the nineties. So, um, uh, and deep in the East. Um, so that's changed. But in New York, the Haitian community is so robust and it's always sort of repopulating itself, um, for better or for worse, unfortunately, with all that is happening in our small half an island, um, my aunt being a former immigration uh, attorney, we've had to make sure to be available to folks who need advocacy, um, just understanding how to work the system to be able to, to stay um, or understanding what it means if they have to go back right? Having uh, cousins and families who work for the DA's office. like This is very crucial in being a community member, first and foremost. Um, But in general, because I'm just a very fun-loving kind of gal, I make sure that I'm investing in the fun too. Where's the bowels? Where are the parties? Where are the the good food? Where is the music, right? Um, As someone who Pride myself in being a carnival queen, I'm always making sure that my Haitian flag is seen in these spaces with other Caribbean people um, just because folks, unfortunately, the historical aspect of Haiti in the Caribbean, um, a lot of islands were taught to not like us. And now people are remembering like, wait, no, you are the first black republic. Like you, you fought hard for all of us. To be free. And the more that that information is coming back to light and the younger generation is, is sitting with that, as well as the older generation is adjusting to their preconceived notions, it's time to have a good time. Let's Let's be together in community. And I love that through carnival, costuming, dance, music, and such.
1: I mean, the reality is, you know, a lot of Um, Haitian influence has a huge impact on um, even just when I think about New Orleans culture, red beans and rice, flambeau, carnival culture, as you said, um, but, you know, just in general, even on Latin American culture as well. And it's unfortunate that, like you said, you know, that it's... um, it's still Haitian culture and, you know, the legacy of what Haitian has contributed, Haiti has contributed to the world is still yet to be told. Um, and I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine, Chef Tani, who's um, a Haitian-American uh, chef for the Portland Trailblazers. And, you know, she was talking to me about just the shame that she felt um and a lot of Haitian Americans can probably, you know, resonate with her feelings, but just growing up in Miami in little Haiti and, you know, feeling like she had to say she was African-American because, you know, ha- Haitians were looked down upon and, you know, she said we would kind of hide our culture sometimes and not until the Fugees, you know, became a, a success where people like nodding at us, like, okay, y'all are Haitian, you know, and, right. and, and just the fear behind that between religion, you know, Vodun and, you know, all of the fear that was put on and in an, a, a beautiful country, a beautiful people. And we still see that today with, you know, what's ha- how Haitian undocumented immigrants are treated in this country you know, and compared to other immigrants when they come to this country. And it's, it's heartbreaking to see those images and, you know, and when, when those, uh, so many were in that, under that bridge in Texas, and then all of a sudden they just disappear and you don't know what happened to them, you know?
0: okay, um, seriously,
1: and it wasn't, they weren't disappeared. They were removed clearly, you know, exactly. intentionally. And so for, you know, Haitian Americans, I think to show up and political spaces or in you know and and po and you know symbols of power is powerful for all haitians wherever they are you know um and so you know i'm just curious how do you see food media growing and telling these you know stories of um, marginalized communities and and countries considering you know all of the legacy that Haiti, that even African-Americans, you know, um, African-American heritage is just now just a little bit is coming out. And it's, we're, I mean, we're not even at the cusp of all the stories that need to be told. How do you see it evolving? And what, what do you feel is the future of food media and global black food ways?
3: That's a really good question. Um, and I'm still sort of lingering with the question you asked before, because there was a tie between the two. And I, I just want to name that. One, it's about intentionality. So the question before was about like, how am I in my community? There's ha- you have to be intentional, um, especially if you want to see um, good change and good impact. Right. Um, and I say that to say like, as I'm here in new Orleans, I make sure to do little things, possibly like host a dinner at my house for Fet Gede, which is um, slightly a pre-predecessor to uh, Dia de los Muertos, right? Where we honor our ancestors. And that ritual in Haiti slightly is older than the one in Mexico. And there's a lot of questions of, did it transfer over with indigenous cultures, things like that. Um, But hosting that here in New Orleans, in my home where I'm offering good Haitian food or just music and bringing that energy in, that intention is to give a a positive impact of recognizing, one, that the culture lives, it is still thriving, even if we don't get a parade like Dia de los Muertos does, but we're here. And then um, just as the same I do for January 1st, the Haitian Revolution um, Day of Independence, where we got our independence from France. Um, and we took the independence for the whole island, even the Dominican side. And there was a, you know, 15 years of warring to get to that place. I make sure to have soup jumou at my house. And you can go to a restaurant, a Haitian restaurant and get that. But there's something very different when you're sitting in someone's home, and they're feeding you and they're nourishing you as the soup is supposed to do. When it's done in its proper form, which is without meat, it sustains in the body for 21 days. You need that to fight. You need that to be available to your community in ways of help, being helpful, right? Um, so when I look at that and those intentions, um, as well as like Conjure Carnival, something that I'm working on to bring more awareness of Haiti's carnival culture with other carnival folks, it's all about intention. Um, So when it comes to media, media has changed, period. Most people are not even watching cable anymore. Everything's being streamed. Everything's on social. Um, When I was working in the commercial world, uh, because I did TV, I did film, I did commercials, what I loved is, oh, what platform, you know, they would say, what channel will this be aired on? And they're not talking cable. They were talking Pinterest. They're talking YouTube because then, even then they knew this is the way of media. And so with all the intentionality um, and, and personal purpose that we all bring to the table, like this podcast, right? Um, Like, hosting a meal at your house or in a nice venue that's intimate and making sure to put that through the streaming waves, whether that's, uh, you know, Instagram or TikTok creates better associations, creates better stories that help educate. And in some regards, as you said with your friend, a solve, like something that's healing, a remedy, remedy, as we say, a remedy because I I heard the stories of my mom and my aunt saying, oh, we're from Martinique because they had similar shame. And that was in the 60s and the 70s. Right. It was the AIDS then in the 80s. It was, you know, this poor half a country always has some stigma. Um, And and there's so many reasons for that. But when we're intentional and we're utilizing media as a tool and a resource, so many things can be not only uh, remedied, but definitely help reimagine a new way of associating and connecting and being in community.
1: So we want you all to continue listening and we want you to continue to connect with community and we're going to continue our discussion with Joelle. We're so excited to come back after these brief messages uh, about soup Jomo. We want to hear more about the story of the national Haitian dish uh, that has everything to do with black resistance and the freedom, the liberation of Haiti and liberation of enslaved people. Um you know, and who were in bondage for quite some time. So thank you for joining Culture and Flavor, and we'll be right back.
2: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: So, we're back. Thank you for joining Culture & Flavor. Um, and uh, you know I just wanted to go back to what you were saying Joel, about um, soup Jumo and just how you know that that's that dish, that soup is so integral to uh, you know the Haitian Revolution, resistance, the um, abolition of slavery. Can you talk a little bit about why that soup is so um, important to Haitian heritage?
3: Yes, so, um, what people don't realize, I think, what I think people don't realize is in Haiti, we were at war with France for 15 years in, in multiple ways, not just like all out war. But resistance had been going on for about 15 years before we actually hit our independence in 1804, January 1st, 1804, which is why every January 1st, although in the Gregorian calendar, it is New Year's. For everyone, it is our Independence Day as well. Um, and the soup, so the thing is this there's two, you know, it's interesting how history works. It can get hijacked. There is a running um, historical reference of Soup Jumu being the enslaved Africans taking the, the elite soup of France and sort of the one that they had to serve their masters and they own it for themselves that actually is not historically accurate uh the soup was actually constructed by empress felicite and what a lot of people forget is that a lot of enslaved africans particularly in colonies like haiti were from herbalist nations in west africa and so they understood the plants they understood their roots they understood you know which is part of what Folks don't also understand about Haitian vodou. In and it of itself, its base root is herbology. It's it's herbalism. It's it's food uh, nourishment. It's food medicine, right? Um, uh, and so with soup she created something because she could see the people had heart, but if their bellies aren't full, if it's not nourished, they won't be able to fight, and they won't be able to c- continue. So with Empress Felicite, she understood that with root vegetables like squash that hold a lot of antioxidants and hold a lot of um, hydration that we now would consider fascia looking at the body, you want that to latch on to protein once it's consumed. The protein would be the human. So that's why traditionally, in its in its original form, soup is vegetarian because you need all those good uh, vegetables to latch on to the actual human to then stay with the human. And it's been tested that soup can last in the body in its original form up to 21 days. Now you keep eating that soup, you're gonna win a war. Right, and so this is part of the history that now has been hijacked. That folks are now remembering, or re- coming back to recognition, um, and it's also the power of of women knowing how to nourish, as we are doing this podcast on a Mother's Day, but nourish yes. many, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's the beauty of the history um, that I always hold. So when I when I host uh, the Independence Day soup jumu at my house, I first serve it just vegetarian. I make meat. If people want to put the meat in, they can. They want to put the noodles in, they can. But that wasn't the original way to make the soup way back in like the late 1700s. Mm, mm.
1: I'm glad that you mentioned that because... um you know, there's and I think there's some definitely some parallels with other um, Caribbean countries, Latin American countries. When you think about Sancocho, when you think about oil down yes. in Grenada, you know, all of these soups were root vegetables and even gumbo. You know, there's, I mean, maroons, you know, were, who were running away to, you know, the the swamps. They weren't, you know. a lot of runaway enslaved, um, folks were not moving all the way to the North star, couldn't get to Canada. So you stayed, you know, in the swamps and, and, and so, you know, to make that one pot stew, the starches, everything that you need to live another day, to fight another day is so part of, you know, our history in fighting colonization, you know, enslavement, and just to pass on those stories and, and, uh, legacies and culinary legacies for the next generation. So they can also fight another day.
3: Yes. Yes. Mm. I'm
1: so excited just to see, you know, your, you grow throughout this um, journey that you're on, and you know, what are some of the things that we can look forward to that you are working on? I, I know you mentioned a few things to me when I saw you when we uh, filmed HBCU tailgate throwdown. That I do want to say is something I'm really, you know, excited for just to see um, come out and you know, just you as a Zeta and your relationship with Dr. Ford and, you know, and see you all in your Zeta-ness. <laughs> it's beautiful. Blue and white all the way from Diller to Zeta land. <laughs> How, what are you working on that we have, some, we, we can look forward to? So currently I'm working
3: with, The Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. I definitely have to give them a shout out. Also lovingly called BEAM. Um, Mm -hmm. I love working with them because now I, so very transparently, I don't tell people this often, but I have retired from TV and film, although it means nothing. It means nothing because it's like the mob. You know, you retire, they call you back. It's fine. But I'm actively in my vocation era where I want to be utilizing... Not only my experiences, um, my somatic psychology background, to be able to really connect with the community um, in a way behind the scenes that make an impact. So working with BEAM um, as one of their program managers is just really a gift. Um, We're doing all these trainings as well as um, events that really center Black mental health Healing justices. Um, we're talking about re- reimagining black masculinity. We're just in these amazing pockets getting not only lovely funding and recognition. Um, our founder, Yolo, was just speaking on, uh, at the Milken Institute on reimagining masculinity and its effects. So currently, that's where I'm at now. I'm loving what I do, I'm loving who I'm working with and working towards. A, a better envisioning for black mental health and emotional health. Right. Um, and then personally, I have, a, literally a conjuring up of conjure carnival spelled with a K and no E. And we are you know, still in our infancy stage, but it's, it's been a delight to come back home to new Orleans and to see, um, Where the healing through body and pleasure and joy and music and and collective connection actually regulates nervous systems and helps folks heal. And I just want to keep uplifting that, obviously centering uh, Black women, Black folks, queer folks, trans folks, um, where in traditional carnival cultures, they are definitely, we're not... Black women may be centered, but more from a voyeuristic and exotified space, but not as like ownership, not as um, making sure that we're doing good for the culture. And then in other spaces, obviously, our queer folks, trans folks, they're definitely pushed more to even farther into the margin in carnival spaces. And so with Conjure Carnival, we definitely want to be able to bring them into the centerfold um, and and make a name for New Orleans to remember it is a part of the. It's part of the Caribbean. It's part of the Latin Latin conga line. You know, we do a second line here, but it's part of the conga, con- congo, right, line and um, and sort of reclaim those lost histories through revelry and fun and beauty. So Conjure Carnival, like I said, we're still up and up, but I'm getting excited because um, good, good things are one good things that come
1: up. Oh, right. It's it's so refreshing to see so many young um, Haitian Americans, you know, just kind of, you know, going through this period, this, this, you know, of just being proudly Haitian. And, you know, I'm watching just some of my my friends who are Haitian, uh, just, you know, either through their practice, through food, whether they're chefs, whether they're, um, you know, Doing things like the culture, I know they had a, a crew here in New Orleans and had a ball uh, last year. I think the um, a Haitian crew and I was just so you know impressed by seeing that you know because we can't as a historian we can't talk about New Orleans without talking about Haiti you know um, and just to see you all just really you know taking the helm for those who couldn't couldn't say they were proudly Haitian is, is really beautiful, you know? And I think you, you all are in a very unique time, um, in history just to, um, be a part of that in mental health and what you're doing in mental health is, is amazing. And, you know, I'm curious, are you going to, um, infuse some of your, um, you know, food as medicine? Uh, you know, are you going to look at plants as medicine? Because Haiti, as, as some of our listeners might know, you know, as well as, you know, all of the Caribbean and just the, the fauna, the flora, all of these medicinal herbs that, you know, have been used for centuries to cure, to heal, to conjure, um, you know, have helped us throughout the ages. And, um, you know, I just wonder if you're going to infuse that in, in that because mental health is a huge, huge piece, um, that needs to be, uh, Focused on in our communities as we get out the pandemic, as we move forward, you know, kind of savage capitalist society that eats, eats your, um, you know, your mind, body, spirit, and your kids, you know, it's, it's um, something that needs to, and we have, we, what I want to say is we have to find ways to go back to ancestral medicine, ancestral healing. Uh, to make sure that we can, as you know, the Haitian Revolution happened, live and fight another day. Yes,
3: um, I I love that you brought that that sort of like bringing that up again as far as uh, food, food medicine, food cultures. Um, most definitely, like personally, as someone like I've worked in food television too long, I know too many chefs at this point that. Um, the conversation around remembering not only emotional health, how food really regulates our emotional health as people and definitely as Black folks throughout all of our diasporic cultures. Um, One of my things that I love is to synthesize the cultures um, in the sense of, you know, we have Subjumu, but when I go to Barbados, I love their culinary um, crossovers, You can play mass. You can be literally reveling all day in gorgeous costumes. When you're with a Barbadian, the second they're off the road, the first thing they say, let's go get some pumpkin soup. I find that interesting, right? It's an ancestral, um, not only awareness, but a memory that has sustained them that they know, even as young people, what we need to sustain what we've just done is to go to pumpkin soup, which is also a basis of soup jumou, right? So there's a part of the history that we, d- we need to keep synthesizing and not keep in silos so that we realize like, oh, we were doing this in Barbados. We were doing this in Haiti. We were doing this in Colombia. And where are we doing this in New Orleans? How does it show up here, right? Or how can we reintroduce it here? Um, as far as the the herbalist side, that I, I can't get away from that, As I speak to you, I'm looking at my ancestral uh, wall, and the mother, the adoptive mother to my my Haitian grandmother, was a doctor by trade, but because she was a woman, she wasn't allowed to practice outside of being a doula. And so that that consistent message of keep a good relationship with the herbs, keep good relationship with the spirit right? We look uh, culinarily, we don't talk about it in this way, but we're always referring to spirit, whether it's through uh, herbs, whether it's literally through alcohol, right? And yet we're pressing out the essences and the magic, magi, magi, out of them to help us, right? To help us uh, stay healthy, to help us uh, get over something that's that's uh, attacking our bodies. So I, I definitely will always have that with me. And I look for opportunities to um, be again, and not only in conversation, but in community, as um, I'm also still learning who are the apothecaries here in this town, um, of this, this town and city, right? Um, and seeing how to just keep uplifting their work as well as where I can contribute. But that is never lost on me, especially when I'm hosting small, you know, gatherings and get-togethers. That like this is all healing work. This is all uh, remedy work, so that we can stay in our bodies, right? Stay present with what what we've always known. I, I when I think about somatic psychology, I think about Congo Square all the time. It's for me, it's the birthplace of the most somatic experience in this side of the world. And it was uh, mislabeled and sloppily uh, called jazz. But that was what they were doing at Congo Square. They were remedying each other through music, through dance, through the herbs, the market. And they created something that gave them a sense of sustainability, joy, and to stay in their bodies so that they can See another day for their ancestors and their ascendants, the folks after them.
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I forgot the percentage, but it's a, it's a very high percentage of Black New Orleanians who have Haitian ancestry. I mean, clearly <laughs> because of the Haitian Revolution. And, you know, as my dear friend Dr. Kara Ollish said, there would be no United States if there wasn't the Louisiana Purchase. And what then the Louisiana Purchase wouldn't have happened without the Haitian Revolution. That's right. right. Um, and you know, just thinking about just where we are in Bubancha, the na- the land of many tongues and yes. you know just all of this this uh wealth um how disconnected a lot of us are from the the roots and the herbs that once healed us, but you know the flip side is because you were in you know media and will you know in some ways still continue to be in media it's a paradigm shift I think that's happening where, um, this generation is not bombarded by Western, um, religions or, you know, or, or any kind of dogmatic religions that put fear in you of, you know, of medicine, of spirituality. I think there's a huge um, moment and you see it on social media, people kind of reclaiming their heritage, doing the research, reading, trying to ask their elders, how do I heal myself with this? How do I, you know, how do I, um, you know, attract love in my life? How do I attract wealth in my life? So it's ve- it's a very interesting time um, mm-hmm. of just research and education and reclaiming. And, you know, I just, I wonder how, you know, and just your observations, and just on media in general, and how uh, the internet and these social media platforms have become repositories for the sharing of information, the sharing of visuals. And as Black folks show up in these spaces where they can post things, you know, and create content that um, we wouldn't have been able to do Early food network, right? You know, right. you had to play the game, and and you know, and and if you were a you know anybody who used a chef that used plantains, just kind of turn the other cheek if somebody said something about like, what is that? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. How how do you see media evolving and telling food? Uh, and telling food stories, you know, as we go towards a world that's about to, this already is, but as we go towards artificial intelligence, how do we still Mm. claim space? How do we still claim, you know, our, who we are and passing that down to the next generation in this technology age that's going by so fast and, you know, something new every day? How do we go forward in that um, space? And how, where do you see food media in the future?
3: That's a really powerful question. Um, so, the the first the first response that comes up for me is we have to, especially as Black folks, we have to remember that in the height of transatlantic slave terror, our ancestors were high level. Encoders. Um, I have a dear friend who said we look at media now as if we never had the strongest media ever, and it was the drum. That was our first technology. And I have to. I, I want. I want the listeners to really hear that. If you are black and you just heard that, think about that, because it don't matter where they put us in the world. We know who we are the second we hear that drum before any tick tock viral
1: thing happens. Mm. We know that. And it was taken from, it was prohibited. You know, Exa- it was outlawed exactly. in black and indigenous exactly. Um, communities. Exactly. SD. Go ahead. Exactly. I'm sorry. I just had to put that in there.
3: Yes. And the, and I say that because it was a powerful technology. It had to then be transmuted into to become encoded information. And then now I feel like to your question, we are now the generation of decoding what was encoded. So we can utilize fast platforms to get information out, but we need to keep looking at a larger way of decoding what was already encoded for us to keep finding, to keep remembering to ourselves. And I say remembering, again, I'm going to, I say this because I still am very rooted in somatic psychology. And for those that don't understand, somatic psychology is the Western way of identifying the parasympathetic nervous system. It's the nervous system that when you feel something powerful or otherworldly, the hairs on your body stand up. It's when you're sitting in the food court at the mall and somehow you just know someone's staring at you. Your brain, your central nervous system, i.e. brain and and spine is not saying someone is looking at you, turn around. But the parasympathetic nervous system is saying something ain't right or someone is staring at me, let me adjust, right? So we're looking at that because that is where most of our trauma is encoded as well as our triumphs are encoded. It is this nervous system that we are inheriting from our ancestors a minimum of a million years, and it's the one that says, we don't do fire or we don't go too deep in the ocean. It's a knowing that you could be one years old and know we don't do fire, we don't go deep in the ocean. That kind of memory. So when I say remembering, I'm not speaking to the brain. I'm not speaking to the wit that Western psychology says, that is where you are smart. It's the gut, my gut told me, my body told me. And when we get back to that, and I think that's what's slowly happening is there's a remembering coming online, both in central and parasympathetic nervous systems. And when the two start to come fully together, we're going to have a way more robust revolution of, oh, we have to get back to this. We have to get back to that. We have to remember Like why in a lot of African-American cultures do we use X, Y, Z when we cook? Oh, we know what salt actually does. We know what heat actually does. We know, you know, we know what plant life actually does. And it's not just in um, or only in scientific forms. It's in uh, encoded memory of our body. It's an encoded memory of how we live in harmony with each other. Um, And I feel like food is such an easy hack. I talk about that all the time, hacks. What are your hacks that help you remember? Food is an easy hack. We can sit down together. Um, I always say black people have probably solved every world crisis over a meal. We just never wrote it down, so nobody gets doing it. But we talk, we converse, we delineate over food. And if the food is really good to the body, it heightens the memory. And now with the TikToks and, um, you know, I say I'm young, but I'm, I'm still in my 40s. So it's like, okay, I'm in the older young, you know, young range or I'm in the younger, older range. But for young, young, young people, they get to the information fast, but they don't necessarily know what to do with it. So you have all this media that's being produced on all this lots of social platforms and it's good, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to go with it. They don't have enough physical capital. They have social, which is why they're on social media, right? So it's really trying to um, help them with all the information that's coming online, becoming accessible, um, finding ways of decoding, memorializing it, uh, taking over actual educational spaces where we're teaching each other Right. Like truly teaching each other, not just being taught at. Um, And I think that to that point, when it comes to A.I., I personally don't say let's all be afraid of A.I., um, but let's also make sure that we are thinking of how to utilize A.I. as a tool. Not a weapon. And definitely for the better good, not to sort of have any more erasure because that's already happened and it's still happening and we don't need any more erasure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um I think, you know, um what you said about just young people, you know, really deciphering and um and being able to critically analyze the information that they are receiving and that's coming across their phone is so critical. Um you know, and Understanding the past um, in, you know, just everything you said about the drums and how, you know, that that was so integral. The drum was so integral. And how do we create these kinds of experiences, these somatic experiences today in the 21st century going forward is going to be um, key to our existence as. You know things change or things are really changing around us you know by the minute and um I'm just curious you know how um how do you move forward with this um this knowledge that you have about somatic psychology to uh create community to help break bread uh with you know new communities or new learners who are coming into the space of um, mental health. How do you do that?
3: Allies, uh, alliances and allyship. um, That's my first go to now. I can't do it all on my own. It's never been for me to do it all on my own. It is enjoying beautiful friendships with like amazing people named like Zella Palmer. I don't know if you heard of her, but <laughs> I you know. want
1: to, I want to invite to that, uh, to the, to the dinners. I definitely want that. <laughs> you know, but That's what it is.
3: It's, 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 <laughs> oh, you know, um, and for me, I, I will say this and it's, it's interesting. Cause I, I don't talk a lot about this. I went to a college called Goshen college in Goshen, Indiana with Mennonites. Right. Um, and I learned, even though it, it had its, it's had its ups, it had its downs, had a lot more downs, but it was the first time I'd ever been in a community, um, definitely of white people, where they were so beautifully aware of their purpose as a culture to help. And everyone is welcome to be a part of that help. And it struck me so deeply as a young person that I was like, if you know, if we look at, like you said, dogmatic religions, and uh, particularly in Christianity, talk about the body of Christ, right? I, I said, Mennonites are the hands, and they know they're their hands. That's why they get into the world, they get it done, they build. You know, they help with the wells. I, you come to New Orleans. Talk to people post-Katrina. They said, child, some Mennonites have showed up and started fixing my house. <laughs> you know, I learned from them the importance of community, the importance of bonding and coming together. Let's do the job. Let's do the work. What do you do? Okay, great. I can do that. I can help you with this. What, um, who do we need to talk to? Uh, and it's not, and it's not to say it's only black people. You got to find, as it opens, you got to find some of your good white people. Like you got to find other folks who have the same mission, the same good intention. They have no, they're, they're only there to be of help. And that is my biggest um, quote, unquote strategy, right. Is the the, the right alignment um, and making sure that people you know, understand. I have no, I have no intention of being a guru. You know, granted, some people may think that in in how they're uh, experiencing me. I have, I have past assistants, past coordinators, that they see me as a guru for them in, in the in their field. But I'm not. That's not my intention. It's my intention is how am I of help, and how can I align with who you are, and what you do, and where you are. Um, and a second thing, I always say, particularly particularly is this. Know your privilege. I sit with my own privilege, even in a highly marginalized body. I sit with my privilege because if I don't sit with my privilege, I don't know how it can be of any use. All of our privileges are of use. If I have two legs, then I can walk farther than someone who's in a wheelchair. I'm aware of that. Let me do the thing, but if you're in a wheelchair and you get us front row passes, do to use your privilege, right? Everyone has to see their privilege, sit with their privilege, for better or for worse, and use it for better. Is 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 the operative preferred space, right? Um, So I always say that because I think of people like my grandmother, who granted she had to start from the bottom in America, uh, my Haitian grandmother. She uh, Renee, she had to start at the bottom and work her way up. But when she retired, as a kid, we would see all these immigrants, not only Haitian, but they would come to our house and she would get them ready for the world of America. She'd say, okay, this is where you're going to stay. I have someone who's going to take care of you here. What we're going to try to do is raise up such and such amount of money. These are the doctors who can help you. These are the people who can, you can get your food from. Who That, you know what I mean? We've lost a lot of that, particularly in this country, but it doesn't mean it's completely gone. And the more we revive it, the more we um, remember the old ways of bartering and Mm -hmm. we can can be of some beautiful help.
1: I think also, you know, just it's a lot of the resistance or the, you know, how it was destroyed was absolutely policy and law. You know, when you think about um, black doulas. I mean, I remember you were mentioning, you know, um, your, was it your mother or your grandmother who was a doula?
3: Adopted um, grandmother, yes.
1: Yes. And, you know, just how, um, doulas were literally, um, banned from practicing. And if you look at, you know, I encourage the listeners to look at the history of, You know African American doulas of Indigenous doulas in the United States, and you know how for centuries they were the ones called to you know help the 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 rich planter you know birth the children and you know and breastfeed and all this other stuff and knew how to use herbs from the for the woods to cure people, but once you know Western medicine became a you know a, a a hegemony and a and a corp and corp you know and corporate, then you know all of a sudden all of this knowledge you know was gone and it was also you know poor I I have to say poor white doulas as yes. well you know yes. because they because medicine you couldn't afford to go to the doctor you couldn't afford to you know pharmaceutical drugs and they were still practicing and, and trying to figure it out you know and right. so. It's so important to try to figure out in this age of technology of artificial intelligence that's that's already here and all these other things that um, are trying to marginalize human beings. It's it's so important to really just, you know, try to find ways around that. And it's it's it's. It means sometimes even just getting on a plane. When I look at Mar- Morocco, when I went to Morocco and the doulas out there, their practices in Peru, you know, it, it's, it's, it's incredible how these, you know, this heritage is passed down, but we have so much work to do here in the U S to, um, not become, you know, to revive that and to remember, yes. you know, to remember what you said was, it was so powerful to remember.
3: Yes. And there's, and it's funny because I want to say, you know, I try to continue to say my ancestors' name. Ma V um, is the name of the woman who raised my Haitian grandmother, although she never birthed her. And there's something around, for those of us that do the, the large work of beautiful impact of our communities, sometimes we don't always benefit also. And There's this weird, you know, it's like how the psychic can never tell you the uh, the lottery numbers because they're not supposed to win. They're supposed to just tell you to go take do the lottery. Um, It's sometimes it is that relationship, but we have to sit with the normalcy of that relationship. And I say that because that my uh, mom v that grandmother she. She could cure vitiligo. People, I have. We have memory. Um, we have historical references of her being able to cure things in the in the village, and she birthed everyone's children, but she herself couldn't have kids. And so my biological great grandmother had had nine kids. And you know, as a joke, not that you know, this is a small island. They don't live far from each other. She said, "Yeah, you know, I, I can spare one. You can take one if you want. Yeah, I got enough." And she took my grandmother and she raised my grandmother. And that's also part of community. So I have this beautiful heritage of two great-grandmothers. One who has this ancestral practice of knowing the land and the herbs and how to really cure things and, and, and remedy the people. And another one who just was a giver and a nourisher and you know definitely always kept it classy. We called her the madame, you know, and teaches you. Style and grace and how to take pride in what you create because she was a, a creator in her own way um, and so that part of remembering I think it also comes with being real to how we hold we hold nourishment we hold remedy and sometimes it's not always just for us it's for other people we have to be able to utilize it for other people
1: mmm I know we're, you know, coming to the close of our podcast, but the last question I wanted to ask, and I want you to think about this one, you know, just thinking about um, Haitian culture and and just where um, Haitian communities are now. What is What are some of the biggest misconceptions about Haitians that you would like to share with our listeners to get them to, um, you know, really um, grasp the totality of The beauty of Haitian culture and its people? (sighs) Mm.
3: I notice I'm a little emotional with that question, and I want to sit with the emotion because one of the biggest misconceptions of Haiti is we are the poorest country in the world or in the Western hemisphere. And although on paper that may seem true currently, however, up until about 1967 or 68, we were the wealthiest country on the Western hemisphere, more wealthy than the United States of America. And when you talk to economists, Similarly, as we all did the, uh, the frog or the pig in biology, we all had to do that. Haiti is their frog or their pig because in less than a hundred years, it has become the quote unquote poorest and it doesn't make sense. And so when you're dissecting it, you see how many hands of colonial, imperialistic, capitalistic, toxic, patriarchal systems have been a part of its pillaging and its being tampered with. I still remember hearing stories as the first American born to my mother's family, the elder saying when the Americans came, which was in the 20s, 1920s, a hundred years ago. They were cruel. They were the cruelest. They treated us so badly, right? When you start to get into the city banks um, and the Exxon Mobiles, the amount of money they were taking out, aluminum foil for Reynolds wrap, um, just all the resources that they were taking and still are in a lot of cases. Why a lot of Haitians don't, don't mess with the Clintons, They meddling with the stuff. All of this creates the quote unquote poorest country in the world, but it ain't the people completely. It is really, I would say at least 60% of Europe, Canada, the US really messing with our system crippling it to the point that the people can barely help themselves. That, especially as a diasporic ICM, is very hard to watch, It is very hard to help, because we know this isn't just, oh, an unfortunate situation. This is highly systemized meddling. And I will leave my answer at that.
1: Mm. Well, I wanted to thank all of our listeners. I mean, this is so, this was such a powerful conversation. Thank you, Joelle. And I know we're going to have plenty more and I definitely want to invite you to come back on Culture and Flavor and, you know, just talk more as you, um, you know, work towards building more with beam and, you know, your, your carnival initiative. I'm just so excited for all the things. And I know whatever you're going to do is going to be brilliant. And I know it's going to always honor your ancestors and who you are and how you show up and, you know, you're just a phenomenal black woman. And I just really appreciate all the work that you're doing. And I just want to give you your flowers now, you know, and just, uh, send some light and love your way. And, um. You know, sac passe to all the Haitian community. Hey, hey. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Messi
3: en pil, merci en peel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Zella, for having me on the show. Thank you for just creating this space. It is necessary. It is needed. And it is the now.
1: Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joelle. And thank you all for tuning in to Culture and Flavor. And uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And thank you once again for this lovely Mother's Day episode. And I just want to, you know, give honor and, and, and love to my own mother, Alice Palmer, mm. and all of my uh, matriarchal ancestors oh, who are no good. longer here with me. I'm Sweetie, I'm Caroline. I love you very much. Um, so thank you. Thank you all. Happy Mother's Day.
3: Happy Mother's Day. Honor respect to Josie Dusek. Josiane Dusek, my mother. Honor respect.
1: Take care. Culture and flavor is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network